Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're grateful that you have come this morning to join us for worship here at Ivy Creek. Those of you who have joined us online, we certainly welcome you to our services today. And those of you who are here in person, we are so glad that you are part of our services today as well. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We, uh, we looked at the first half of this chapter last week, particularly when we studied uh, the parable that Jesus tells there from verses 16 down through verse 24. And that parable is about a, a great invitation to a great supper. And Jesus used that parable to, to really teach about God's kingdom and about the invitation that he extends to all to come and be a part of it. Now, as we noted from that passage last, last week, not everybody, though, accepts that invitation that God offers. Many make excuses for not coming and not uh, coming to the, the kingdom banquet, and thereby they show that they don't value all that God offers them, and, and, and they, don't, they don't value all that God is to them and for them. But the invitation continues to go out, nevertheless, and it is an invitation that is not exclusively for the religious and, and for the, the respectable people. We saw that last week as well. Rather, God's banquet table is open to any and all who will accept his invitation and, and place their faith in Jesus Christ and, and follow him. And I want you to know that that, is a, that parable is such an impactful parable. It is such a... a, a uh, a powerful one. It's a life-changing understanding that we, we realize that, that God invites us to come and to be a part of his kingdom. And that becomes evident. The fact that it is such a life-changing message that Jesus gave there becomes evident when we look at what happens in the rest of this chapter because Luke tells us in verse 25 that there were many who evidently heard what Jesus had, had taught and there were many who followed him who evidently started raising their hands and saying, yes, I want to come and be a part of God's kingdom. In fact, there were great multitudes that began to follow him. There were many who began to, to uh, look at all that God was going to offer them in coming to the feast at his table. And it was so appealing to them that they wanted to become a follower of Christ. And we might say, well, that's awesome. That is great. That's good. That's exactly what we want to see. We want to see lots of folks making decisions to follow Jesus. I'll admit that's exactly what I pray to see. It's what I want to see happen. I want to see a massive move among our people to follow Christ and desire to, to make him Lord of their lives. In fact, that's at the heart of what Jesus himself commends and, and tells his disciples to go out and do. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. That is at the very heart of who we are. Making disciples is what we are to be about. But I want you to point out that it is right here in the middle of Luke chapter 14, right as this great multitude began to follow Jesus, right as he had many, many people raising their hands and accepting his invitation to the great kingdom supper, that he stops and he looks them directly in the eye, as it were. And he says, make sure you know what you're signing up for. 
He tells them, you need to know that discipleship is demanding and the cost is high. We need to hear that same message. As absolutely necessary as it is that we accept God's invitation to his great banquet by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and following him, we must also embrace the demands that such a decision places upon us. That is at the heart of the passage that we're going to look at today. So let's dive in. Let's begin reading there in verse 25. But we read these words. Now great multitudes went with him, went with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still uh, still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your blessings of this day, and we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather in your house this morning. And We pray that your word would affect change in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that we would drive out all the distractions of this week and the things that have happened and the things that are coming up, the things that we may be considering. We pray that we would drive those things out so that we can consider the truth of your word this morning without hindrance. We pray that our hearts would be open and that we would be tender to the Holy Spirit's leading and and moving in our lives. And I pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon myself, upon this congregation, We ask that you would do great things in us, not for our glory, but for your glory. We do ask for you to do great things in us for our good, that you might conform us in the image of your son. You might continue to change us and mold us and make us into the men, women, boys, and girls that you want us to become. God, I believe that you want to send us out into this world to make an impact, to be light, to be salt to be witnesses, to make disciples. So I pray that you would empower us to do that through the working of your spirit 
through your word. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there is a lot that is going on in this text. Um, Nevertheless, I believe that repetition often allows us to, or it exposes the key to the passage that we're reading and and allows us to see really what Jesus is getting after. And I want you to know Jesus repeats a, a phrase three times in this passage. You really couldn't miss it. Three times he says something here that we need to zero in on. He says it once in verse 26, again in verse 27, and then once again in verse 33. Jesus looks at this great multitude and he identifies from among them those whom he says cannot be my disciples. In other words, Jesus places a restriction upon those who can be his disciples. And by doing so, what he does is he introduces to us the high cost, and the high demand of becoming one of his disciples. And I believe that that high cost and that high demand of discipleship is also brought to our attention in this passage by the the brief parable that he tells in verse 34 and 35 about salt that loses its flavor and how once that has happened, then it's no longer of any value and it's worth only to be thrown out. And so while Jesus doesn't repeat the same phrase there that someone cannot be his disciple, he does use a metaphor that certainly indicates that if one's saltiness doesn't endure to the end, then such a one demonstrates that they were never truly one of his disciples to begin with. But then you'll also notice that right in the middle of all this heavy discussion of of, of the demands of discipleship, that Jesus uses two other very brief parables to emphasize the importance of what it means to to follow Jesus, whether we should follow him or not. And those two parables, the one about building a tower and the one about a king that makes plans to go to war or not, those two parables are parables of reflection that are designed to cause us to think. And so what I want us to do is to handle this passage in that order today. I want us to, to consider the various hard sayings that Jesus makes regarding those who cannot be his disciples and and how to evaluate if we truly are his disciple. And then I want us to contemplate and reflect on how important being his disciple actually is. So I want us to look at the first part under the first heading that I've given to you there on your outline. And that first major heading is just simply this. It's discipleship's demand. Discipleship's demands, and and I believe Jesus identifies four of them in this passage. And and the first one is this. To be Jesus' disciple, it will require your absolute allegiance. That's the first sub-point there. It will require your absolute allegiance. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Now, this is certainly graphic language. It's it's troubling language. I had a daughter who was riding with me in in, in my truck a couple of weeks ago, and she was actually reading her devotion. She came to this particular passage of Scripture. She says, And she was very honest. She says, I just don't like that. She goes, that's hard, Dad. It is hard. It's a hard saying. It's a hard saying. It's troubling. 
If there's a classic example of a hard saying of Jesus, it's right here. In effect, Jesus states that if you want to become one of his followers, if you want to be one of his disciples, you have to hate your family, even yourself. Otherwise, you can't be one of his disciples. Now, listen, without even tackling the most difficult part of this verse, we can understand what Jesus is saying. His point is that discipleship is primarily and fundamentally a call to absolute allegiance. In other words, as Daryl Bach has written in his commentary, he states Jesus wants folks to know up front that to be his disciple, he must be placed first above all else, including family and including one's own self. Following Jesus is to be the disciple's first love. And there must be no one who comes before him. Now, we may be able to get our hands around that concept. But what about this hating your family stuff? What about that? How do we, what do we do with that? Did Jesus intend to communicate that we are to actually hate them? Literally. Well, when we come to hard passages like this, we must allow other passages of Scripture to help us in our interpretation. That's what, that's what the Scriptures are good for, because they do not contradict themselves. They are all inerrant and inspired by God. And so what we allow, when we come to something that is really difficult, we sometimes have to go to other places of Scripture that help us understand the difficulty of the one that we're in at the moment. And I would just suggest to you, when you do that, you take the rest of Scripture into context you recognize that according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we are to honor our father and our mother. That is a commandment of God to his people, that we're to honor our parents. Not only that, but we take of what Jesus says multiple times throughout the, 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 the scriptures and the, in the gospels. We know that he commanded in John 13, verse 34, that we are to love one another just as he loved us. According to Matthew 22, verse 39, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And then in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, he says we're to even love our enemies. So if we're to love one another and we're to love our neighbor and we're to love our enemies and we're to honor our father and mother, then, then more than anything else, what we know is that Scripture teaches us that we are to be characterized by love. So what does he, what does he mean then when he says here in this context that we must hate our families. Well, simply put, to hate here means simply to love less than. This is a comparative statement. Comparatively speaking, Jesus says that our love for him must be so strong that any other love and affection we we may have for anyone else will appear as hate. In a different context, Jesus said, Almost an identical thing. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The point that Jesus makes is that only when one forsakes all others is one totally following Jesus. Otherwise, something or someone else will have a greater pull on our allegiances than Jesus does. What that means, very clearly, from what Jesus says, is that 
True discipleship demands absolute allegiance to Jesus. He demands your supreme loyalty. Now, admittedly, that is a hard statement. It's a hard saying. But I want you to know Jesus follows it up with another one. Notice the next subpoint. The next thing we understand that discipleship demands is it demands carrying your cross. Carrying your cross. Luke 14, verse 27 reads this, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, true discipleship demands burden-bearing. But it's not just any kind of burden. It is cross-carrying burden. You know, sometimes someone will say, well, this is this or that. That's just my cross to bear. It's just my cross that I've got to bear. Unfortunately, such statements tend to trivialize and drastically minimize the horrific nature of the cross. That was not the case in Jesus' day. You see, in in that Roman-occupied territory of Palestine, crosses, unfortunately, were seen as the, the means by which Roman justice was meted out against those who were against them and who fought against them and who did not honor them and did not obey their laws. And so the cross was understood in that day and time for what it was. It was an implement of slow, torturous death. Jesus, of course, came to know that firsthand. In fact, he, he made this statement knowing what lay in front of him. Later, after he was condemned to die, Jesus bore upon his back the patibulum, the the cross member of the cross itself. And he bore that. He struggled under its tremendous weight as he took it to Calvary's hill. And so when Jesus speaks of carrying one's cross, he's not referring to some sort of aggravation or some sort of annoyance that we have in our life. He was pointing to an instrument of public shame and torture and execution. He was telling any would-be followers of him that they must also be willing to bear the pain of persecution and suffering that came along with being his disciple. What that means is that carrying one's cross points not only to absolute allegiance, as we've already seen, but it, it also points to sacrifice. In other words, the disciple must be ready to share Jesus' fate of rejection by the world. Jesus taught this same lesson many times throughout the Gospels. And as one writer has put it, a cross-bearing disciple is the only kind of disciple that there is. Brothers and sisters, discipleship is demanding. It demands much more than just simply knowing who Jesus is or even knowing what he came to do. A true disciple will identify with Jesus to the point that his life in all of its suffering becomes the pattern for our lives. In other words, as Philip Graham Ryken has has written, the only Christ that anyone can confess is Christ crucified. And the only way to confess him is to follow him all the way to the cross ourselves. So true discipleship demands absolute allegiance. It demands carrying your cross, but it also demands renouncing 
your resources. That's the third subpoint there, renouncing your resources. Look down with me at verse 33. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And we've already seen that Jesus has told us that we must be willing to pledge our allegiance to him and to him alone, which means our relationship to him will trump any other relationships in our lives. And additionally, he's told us we must be willing to live a life of sacrifice, willing to bear any burden that comes along with our association with him. Well, here the Lord reveals another one of the high demands of discipleship by telling us that in order for us to follow him, we must be willing to distance ourselves from any materialistic attachments. We must be willing to forsake all that we have. We must relinquish our rights to any and all things, and we must yield ownership of those things to the Lord. In other words, Christ is saying that that in order to be his disciple, we must give authority over our possessions and our resources to him. Whatever I have becomes his. It's to be used by him for his kingdom purposes. Now, understandably, this is still a very difficult saying of Jesus. As one writer has put it, the renunciation that Jesus speaks of here is a costly act for those of us who love the stuff of life. It clearly tells us that discipleship involves the daily act of signing away ownership to him. Scott Harris has put it this way. He says, Jesus is demanding a yielding of all your possessions to their rightful owner, himself. You are but a steward of what God has entrusted to your care for the short years of your life on this earth. Those who cling to their stuff have not yet learned what it means that Jesus is Lord. We are his slaves purchased with his own precious blood. John MacArthur writes this. He says, Jesus is not advocating socialism or getting rid of everything and living a life of poverty. His point is that those who would be his disciples must recognize that they are stewards of everything and owners of nothing. And if the Lord asked them to give it up, give every bit of it up, they would be willing to do so because loving obedience is their highest duty and joy. Listen, the demands of discipleship are high. Demands are absolute allegiance. It demands that we carry our crosses. It demands that we renounce our resources. And then the fourth one is it demands that we engage in combating contamination. Combating contamination. Verses 34 and 35, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. In Jesus' day, much like it is in ours, salt was a commodity that was of great value. Um, It was considered an essential of life. And it was used as a preservative. It was used as a a, a purifying agent, as an antiseptic. It was used as seasoning. It was even used as fertilizer. So with something as valuable and with multiple uses as that is, it makes sense when Jesus says that as long as salt remains salty... It's good, but once it's no longer salty, 
then it's shown itself to be of no value and it's, it's become worthless. What may seem strange about that statement to us, however, is that in our day and time, salt is of such higher quality and is such a stable compound in its, in its very nature that, that it really doesn't lose its saltiness. Not, not the way that we understand it, not the kind of salt that we deal with today. So what was Jesus saying? Well, in his day, salt really didn't have that same understanding in that in his day, salt referred to a mixture of, of stuff that came from the, from the pools in and around the Dead Sea because there were a lot of minerals and a lot of things that were there and, and those minerals, when, when the water evaporated, would be collected up and that, that mixture of, of various chemicals or various compounds was called salt. Only a part of that was sodium chloride, which is what we know to be salt today. And what would happen is over time, that pure sodium chloride would sort of leach out of the mixture. And when it did, it would leave this white powdery mixture behind it that looked like salt, but was not salt. It had become useless because the sodium chloride had gone away. Now, the point that Jesus makes here is clear enough, even without an extensive knowledge of salt and salt in Palestine. And it is just simply this. When something loses its ability to accomplish its purpose, it's useless. And the same can be said for a disciple of Jesus. What that points us to is the fact that true discipleship demands that Christ followers combat against becoming contaminated by the world around us. You see, the reality is is that we can become so assimilated into the world and contaminated by the impurities of the world that we lose our influence. If we're not diligent, we face the dangers of our lives becoming indistinguishable from the lives of those around us. Our goals become like their goals, and our our, uh, desires in life become their desires. Our motivations mirror their motivations. And our values and our morals mirror their values and their morals. And listen, if that happens, then according to Jesus, a disciple becomes useless. He or she has been contaminated by the impurities that are around them. And they might as well be discarded as saltless salt, thrown out and trodden underfoot. In effect, Jesus says, you can't be a contaminated Christian and call yourself my disciple. So the high demand upon the disciple of Jesus is to engage in the hard work of daily combating against becoming contaminated by the world around us. Now, as we reflect on all that Jesus has said to this great multitude, we recognize that it's all those people that are raising their hands and say, we want to follow you, Jesus. And he's going, let's just make sure we understand the parameters. Let's make sure we get everything right before we continue down this road together. And he's demanding their absolute allegiance. And he's demanding that they carry their crosses. And he's demanding that they renounce their their resources and their dependence upon it. And he's demanding that they combat against becoming contaminated. All of that, every bit of it, is hard work. And what that means is that Jesus has not turned and faced this great multitude and sold them a bill of goods. He's not preached to them an easy believism gospel. 
that required no commitment and no sacrifice. No, instead, he wants their eyes open for them to be fully aware of what they are signing up for. And what is obvious is that Jesus was not interested in a bunch of fans. He wanted followers. Jesus was not interested in a bunch of spectators. He wanted soldiers who were ready to go to war. He wasn't interested in in a bunch of curious watchers. He wanted people who were committed worshipers. And I tell you, he wants the same thing today. And all that points us to the demands of discipleship, and it forces us to contemplate whether we truly want to follow Christ on this road or not. And that was certainly what Jesus wanted this great multitude to do. And it leads me to the second major point that I want you to see this morning. The second major heading there that I have included there is the first one is discipleship's demands. The second one is discipleship's deliberation. Jesus wanted this group of people, and I believe he wants us to examine the data and to determine if we are prepared to follow him. There were those who were following him physically. He wanted them to consider all of the ramifications of everything that he had said and say, are you prepared to follow me fully? You and I have to do the same thing. He does this in those two parables that I mentioned to you before. The first one comes there in verses 28 through 30. And there, Jesus uses a parable to force his hearers and us to count the cost. That's the first sub-point there, count the cost. Jesus describes a man who set out to build a tower. Now, that may sound a little strange to us. I don't know when the last time you built a tower was. It's been a while for me. Um, But towers were common back in those times because they were used for a lot of different purposes. Um, farmers built towers in order to guard their property, especially their vineyards. Uh, the, the towers were also used as a means of like a shed so that they could store their equipment underneath those towers, but also could put the harvest underneath those towers. Uh, military also used towers to be able to observe for long distances. So towers were a lot more compl- uh, commonplace to be seen. The point that Jesus asked is who goes about building a tower without first calculating to see if he could afford to complete it. That's his point. Years ago when I lived in Tennessee, I watched the construction of a very large home as it began. It sat on the side of a very major road that I would travel three or four times every week, so I got to see everything as it began to be built. I watched as the foundation was poured. I watched as the walls went up. I watched as they put the the roof on it. I saw even as they installed the windows into this house, but it was, it was strange to me because everything just sort of stopped. You drive past it three or four times a week. You notice everything about it. You mentally mark, but for years, nothing happened to that house. And I later found out that the owner ran out of money and he couldn't complete the home. Presumably, he had failed to count the cost. Jesus wants to make sure that those considering becoming his disciples do not make the same mistake. He had just stated in the previous verse that to become his disciple will require total submission to him. One writer puts it this way. Following Jesus is no invitation to an ice cream social. 
It's not a casual or an occasional event. And so before signing on to become one of Jesus' disciples, those who were contemplating such a radical move should sit down and decide whether or not they can pay the price, whether or not they are actually willing to give Jesus their absolute allegiance and carry their cross and renounce their resources and combat contamination. This is the kind of deliberation that discipleship demands. It is, it is the emphasis of that first parable. We must count the cost. But then Jesus tells a second parable there in verses 31 and 32, one concerning a king and his army. And the emphasis of this parable is the second subpoint I've given you there. It is to consider the consequences. Yes, we must count the cost, but we have to consider the consequences as well. This second parable, I believe, focuses on a, a, a different problem from the first. It's an expanded issue. You see, if it's foolish to begin without counting the cost, then the second parable tells us it's disastrous to delay one's choice without considering the consequences. He tells this story that in some ways, I couldn't help as I read it this week, seemed to be ripped from our current headlines, specifically thinking about the Ukraine and Russia. He tells the story about a king who faced a decision. An enemy king. He's got to decide whether to go to war against an enemy king or not. It seems that this enemy king is on the march and he's bringing twice as many troops as this first king has. And he has to decide, am I going to fight or am I going to surrender? He's got to deliberate. He's got to contemplate. He's got to consider the consequences. What are the risks involved? What is the likely outcome? Should I seek peace or should I fight? I'm outnumbered. What am I going to do? A decision must be made. And delaying that decision is not an option because that enemy king is on the move. So if I delay too long, then I'm going to have a fight whether I want one or not. And if going to battle means defeat and delaying to seek peace means that there's catastrophe waiting on me, I've got to do something. I've got to think through this. What am I going to do? Now, I believe the Lord's point is obvious here. Not only do we need to count the cost of discipleship, but we need to consider the consequences of refusing discipleship as well. You see, most scholars recognize that the Lord is portraying himself here as the stronger king. He's the, he's the one, he's the more powerful king in this parable. And therefore, the question that must be asked by each, each one of us is, can I enter into battle against him and think I can win? Perhaps the better question to ask is this, can I afford not to make peace with him? You see, when we count the cost and when we consider the consequences, we realize that while the cost of being a disciple of Jesus is high, the cost of not being his disciple is even higher. Those who reject Christ and those who refuse to surrender themselves to him, who refuse to abandon all other allegiances, and those who refuse to identify with him by carrying their own cross, and those who embrace materialism and refuse to renounce their dependence upon their resources, and those who become contaminated by the entrapments of the world. Well, listen, for a brief time, all of those decisions may turn out okay. 
But the reality is, is that the pleasures of sin are brief. As one has put it, the natural consequences of sin are that they increase the decay of the body and they shatter relationships. But I want you to know, even worse than that are the eternal consequences of such choices. The Apostle Paul describes the very high price paid for refusing to surrender to Christ this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Oh, listen, you must count the cost, absolutely. And yes, the cost of becoming Christ's disciple is high, but you must also consider the consequences because the cost of not becoming his disciple is infinitely higher. Jesus plainly asked in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? He flips it around and states it a little differently but makes the same point here in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Not only must we consider the consequences of not becoming a disciple of Jesus, but we must also think about all that we gain when we do. I would just simply point you back to the study that we we engaged in during the month of January when we looked at all that heaven was going to be for us. And when we realize that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and take you back to where I am. And all of this is going to be yours. But I want you to know it's not just the hope of heaven that propels us. No. He offers us peace and joy and hope and love and blessings in this life that far go beyond any of our imaginations. In other words, the benefits of following Jesus are not just pie in the sky and the sweet by and by stuff. It's not just for then. It's for now. We are experiencing life and joy and peace now, even amidst all the difficult roads that we are called to travel down. And when you weigh out all of that and you consider all that we have discussed this morning, what you end up realizing is that when it comes to the level of commitment that is necessary to be one of his followers, Jesus is not a minimalist. The question that we must ask is not what is the least that I have to do to become one of Jesus' disciples. That's not the question. The question really should be, what could I possibly withhold from him in light of that I can be his disciple? That is a totally different way of approaching the question. In fact, we could turn the question around and make it a definitive statement. To become one of Christ's disciples, well, that's worth risking everything for. That's exactly what Paul said. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, he said, What things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Brothers and sisters, it is not a minimalistic approach to discipleship. It is a high, high, high cost. But the cost of not following him is even greater. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. It's not one of those long ones. 
You can be grateful. The demands of genuine Christian discipleship are high, but they're absolutely worth it. I just want to know, is that your evaluation today? For those of you who consider yourself believers and followers of Christ, have you abandoned all of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, all for him? Have you abandoned everything for Jesus Christ, your Lord? Here's some questions you can ask yourself to help you answer. Are there relationships that are more important to you than your relationship to Jesus? Are there certain things that have a grip on your life that you're unwilling to turn over to the Lordship of Christ? Though your head tells you that everything belongs to God, do your words and your actions agree with that? Are your priorities Christ's priorities? Is the Lord Jesus truly Lord over your finances and your time and your talents? Are you truly willing to forsake all and follow him? Listen, Jesus looked those guys right directly in their eyes and asked them questions just like that. And he looks us in the eyes this morning and wants to know the same thing. At the very end of this passage, Jesus rounds out his teaching by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. That was one of his favorite calls for people to stop, to ponder, and to contemplate, and to think. And we have to do the same thing. We have to evaluate our lives in light of what Jesus has plainly spoken. And when we do, we will quickly determine that the demands of being Jesus' disciple are high. They require us to put it all on the line for him. But what we also come to understand is that becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is the greatest privilege that anyone could ever be offered. And it is a privilege that is available freely. And what that privilege comes with, it comes the hope of glory and the eternal salvation and a share in an inheritance that can never be lost and cannot be taken away. And it is available to all who will by faith trust in Christ and accept his invitation to come and follow him. Will you accept that invitation? Will you follow Jesus? Is he your Lord? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you have presented for us a very thought-provoking, a very very sharp-pointed, passage this morning that necessitates each and every one of us stop, count the cost, consider the consequences. I pray that in these moments right now as we just steal our hearts, that you would speak to us in your clear, crystal clear voice. Help us to be able to know those things that you have brought to our attention that need to be dealt with, areas of our lives that we need to confess, seek repentance. Let your Holy Spirit work in us, conforming us. moment we're going to stand to our feet we're going to sing 
we do, just simply ask that you allow the Spirit of God to move and to do His work in your heart. This oftentimes can be a little embarrassing or whatever to move and to spend time on your knees in prayer, but the things that we've discussed this morning are entirely too important for us to allow those kind of things to infiltrate our thoughts. I'm fully aware that prayers can be offered right where they are, and so I would just say, however the Spirit of God is moving in your life and in your, your heart today, that you would be obedient to Him. If He He's brought conviction to you that you would you would repent of those things. That you would walk out of here a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that is more committed to following Christ with all of your heart. Do not let the enemy steal that from you. If you're here this morning and you've never laid down the things in your life that you're holding up more valuable than Jesus and you've never trusted in him, I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. Come to him. Make the decision to follow Jesus and accept his invitation to his kingdom. There is no greater offer that you will ever have than that one that is offered to you by God through his son, Jesus Christ. So I just simply ask for you to be obedient to the leadership of the Spirit in your heart this morning. Father, we give this time to you and we ask for you to do what you desire in it in Christ's name.